you're listening to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Ultra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. If you're a health professional or perhaps a student and you're interested in the idea of working for a patient organization, or perhaps you're curious about what goes on behind the scenes, then this is an episode for you. We'll be chatting to our guest about their role as the dietitian advisor at the National Society for Phenylketonuria, known as NSPKU. We'll also discuss their experiences and learnings over the past years. For those of you that don't know, PKU is a rare inherited disorder with diet being the main treatment. In fact, you may have heard us discuss it recently on one of our episodes with Louise Robertson and Sarah Howe, and the NSPKU is a patient organization that exists to help and support people living with PKU, as well as their families and carers. And we're especially excited to be chatting today because the NSPKU is celebrating its 50th birthday this year. So a huge congratulations to the organization on that milestone. Without further ado, I am really pleased to introduce you to our guest, registered dietitian Suzanne Ford. Welcome, Suzanne. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Harriet. This is very exciting for me. And uh, thank you for having me during the NSPKU 50th or golden year. No, it's a real, real pleasure to have you with us. And um, Suzanne, it would be great to hear a bit more about you and your background. Sure. Um, well, I qualified about, well, just over 25 years ago. Um, and I, I worked in London, then I came down to Bristol. And I've pretty much worked for the NHS for the first, uh, 100% for the NHS, for the first um 15 years of my career and then I started doing a few different things I worked in academia um, and um, I started working in metabolics in my NHS role in 2009 and then about um, eight years after that I joined the NSPKU uh, because it seemed like a really exciting warm friendly organization to be a part of and I was really inspired by the patients that I met in my NHS metabolic role. So I kind of, well, just gradually got exposed to different opportunities and experiences and um, took, took up those opportunities as they arose. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Suzanne. And we're really looking forward to hearing about all your great work in metabolics and for the um, the PKU community. But before we delve into our topics for discussion, we always ask our guests a few quickfire questions so we can get to know you on a bit more of a personal level. So my first question, Suzanne, is do you prefer tea or coffee? Coffee, I think. Okay. And second question, do you have a particular favourite hobby? Um, I couldn't do without yoga. And that's a kind of lockdown habit, but it's stayed. Amazing. I think it has probably for a lot of people as well listening. And finally, um, who inspires you or has inspired you in the world of nutrition and inherited metabolic diseases? Ah, well, someone I've met um, who's retired um, is a lady called Christine Clothier. And um, actually, NSPKU has a YouTube channel. um, And if you go on there, there's a video of me 
interviewing her, she um, was a metabolic dietitian in the 1960s, starting in, I think, 64 in uh, Liverpool. I think she retired in about 1992. And anyway, she's an incredibly practical person, um, very realistic, um, but she's also very empathic. Um, she was very dedicated to her work, um, quite a pioneer, and she has a fantastic sense of humour. Yeah, I, I, I think she's she's brilliant. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for um, telling us about your dietetic inspiration. Um, I'm really looking forward to chatting on things PKU with you today. So as we kick things off, Suzanne, it would be great to hear about what led you to work with people who have inherited metabolic disorders and specifically what attracted you to working in PKU dietetics. Well, um, really, it was knowing that a colleague who was leaving our department found her work uh, with metabolic and PKU patients. I knew she found it just so fulfilling um, so I guess this is where um, attending the, your department CPD sessions um, in the NHS, finding out what other people do in their roles uh, becomes quite important. So I, I kind of knew that this work was really um, satisfying. And so when um, that dietitian left our department, I said, well, I'm quite interested to, to do this. And I immediately found the patients really kind of relatable um, and quite inspiring in um, how they led their lives and how they accepted um, what could be a difficult diagnosis. So I um, yeah, got stuck in. Um, I didn't um, know about the NSPKU to start with, but then I got involved in a conference um, that the NSPK was having near me. Um, and that was a weekend of fairly intense um, exposure to sort of 150 or 200 people all at once in one place. So that's how I, I got more involved in the NSPKU. Uh, it was a sort of immersion um, weekend. Now, I'd really like to delve into the NSPKU in a bit more detail. Um, so in addition to your clinical work, Suzanne, you're the dietitian advisor um, at the charity. Can you tell us a bit more about this patient organisation and what does it aim to achieve? So the NSPKU was formed in 1973, hence having its 50th birthday this year. Um, and... Um, well, there was a Radio 2 uh, show called The Jimmy Young Show. Uh, and I think that um, it got started through making an announcement on Radio 2 to um, to say a couple called Brian and Sylvia Smith said, oh, if anyone's got uh, children with PKU and wants to get in touch with us, please, please do. We're trying to set up a group. Um, so it's dead. NSPK is dedicated to improving the lives of people with PKU um, and and that includes those living with PKU who are supporting the patient, if you like. So a parent or a carer, they're delivering the treatment and the dietary treatment's really quite complicated um, and uh, and challenging and it's quite, quite time consuming. Um, and metabolics generally is 
a relatively new-ish field. So um, I was reading up and about 20 years ago, there were only 14 dietitians working with metabolic patients in the UK. So the NSPKU was quite important as um, a source of information about the low protein diet that people with PKU have have to follow. Um, and I'm the fourth dietitian at the NSPKU. So um, I think it must be a good organization to work for because it doesn't have rapid turnover of dietitians. We, we um, attach ourselves to the society and stay for quite a while. Um, so the, the support that the dietitians and um, the dietitian and the organization gives to others is producing lots of information for patients or for dietitians to give to their patients. And we've got a website. We produce um, printed resources, newsletters, magazines, that kind of thing. But we have um, vegetables and fruit analysed every year for phenylalanine content. And nobody else in the UK does that. Um, so we're always supporting our patients through getting, you know, up to date current information. So, for instance, sweet potatoes, knowing what the phenylalanine content of the, that food is and jackfruit. We had that analysed well before veganism became popular. And so we could support our patients by letting them know that that was low phenylalanine and in turn supporting the dietitians, treating the patients as well by giving good quality information. It sounds really fascinating and quite a uh, complex um, area that you work in, of course. Um, I'm just curious to know, how big is the organisation? Is it relatively small, large? Tell us we more. Are we're very lean. Um, so there's three paid individuals um, working for NSPKU and all of the rest of the work is done by volunteers. So we have a volunteer uh, who who is our treasurer, um, We but we have a paid bookkeeper. We have a paid dietitian and a paid charity coordinator um, who edits our magazine as well. But we have people who vo are volunteers who run our conference um such as negotiating the hotel contracts um and finding it um crash um and trips and uh, um entertainers um so we we have volunteer advocacy teams volunteer campaigning team um there's an immense amount of passion and commitment in our in our organisation, which is very inspiring. Yeah, definitely. And, and of course, coming from yourself as well. Um, I'm interested to know, did the organisation take a bit of a hit during COVID? Because I know that a lot of charities and patient organisations were um, quite impacted by the pandemic. Was that the case for NSPKU? Um, I think we did a bit because, for instance, um, quite a lot of our, fund, our funds come from fundraisers. That's our families. Um, and I mean, I'm generalising a little bit here, but what I find is um, mums, dads, granddads, grandmas, they do raise money if there's a, a newish diagnosis in a family. So a young baby 
um, diagnosed after the heel prick or uh, um, a toddler or whatever, the um, char- the family enjoys the support of the charity and wants to give back. So those um, those family members used to raise lots of money through their workplaces, and sometimes there would be match funding. So yeah, we did take a hit, but we had some really inspirational um, and flexible fundraisers who somebody did a like a washing line they called it a washing line marathon so um quite a lot of laps of a car park near their house wow people had to get creative then (laughs) yes yeah they did great that sounds really really great and good to hear that the charity is continuing to go from strength to strength um so i'm interested to hear suzanne how you personally became involved with um the nspku tell us a bit more about that journey for yourself well as i say i did spot that um they were having a conference near to my house so i said well i'd like some more insights into you know how you work and what you do and maybe i can lend a hand Um, So I was um, attending a a conference in early spring 2016 in Cheltenham and I just found it so interesting. Um, I I applied for the post and it became free of the dietitian advisor. And that was at the time when the European guidelines on the diagnosis and management of PKU were being published. And um, the organization was undergoing sort of challenges shall we say from its members saying well we want access to um modern treatments are you going to campaign for us and um i quickly got involved in some political work as well so it it became apparent that the work of the dietitian was very varied Um, And I might have to turn my hand to all sorts of things, Um, but I'm very, very happy doing that. And it makes the the role um, interesting and stimulating. And on that note, tell us a bit more about the aim of your role as dietetic advisor at the NSPKU. Um, What what are you tasked with on a kind of day-to-day basis? So I support people living with PKU using my clinical or specialist knowledge Um, So I need to routinely advise the society and members on all kind of aspects of nutritional or dietetic treatment and non-dietary treatment, so clinical um, aspects of PKU. So that might be regularly producing newsletters, um, information on the website, producing printed resources and um, organising the conference information giving aspects so organizing speakers and topics that are um current you know current debates on um dentistry in pku or current debates on psychology in pku or parent aspects of parenting um so I might be regularly producing and planning things, but I'm also looking out for issues that members tell me cause them problems, such as um, the information about aspartame being in oral rehydration salts. And aspartame is um, very rich in phenylalanine. 
is more or less 50% um, phenylalanine. So a product that you take, you know, when you're already poorly isn't um, ideal if it makes you feel worse. So I'm writing to um, the Patient Safety Commissioner about that, or I'm writing to the Food Standards Agency, uh, Professor Susan Jeb, uh, about food labelling because protein labels can be inaccurate or completely missing. Protein might not be on, well, it isn't on um, pepper pig potato faces or pepper pig strawberry jelly um, and explaining why that causes problems. So I'm pro providing information, but I'm also um, troubleshooting issues as they come up. And I am... Um, the person on the end of the dietitian helpline responding to members who, or even non-members actually, because I'm providing a service to all the community, um, helping them with problems that they find difficult to overcome by themselves. That's really fascinating and some great examples that you shared there about the different food products. Um, and I think it reiterates what a complex area it is that you work in and, and probably for the patients, parents and carers to navigate as well, I imagine. Yes, it's really challenging. Um, and the mums, dads, carers um, and patients themselves are absolutely brilliant and tenacious at problem solving, developing recipes, sharing stuff online, being really um, in supportive of each other, actually. Um, but every now and then there are things that people get stuck with. And um, yeah, as a for instance, um, a young undergraduate needed to go on a field trip um, for her marine biology course, and she chose a small island off the coast of Honduras and she was going to go there for a month but she had to get a very tiny plane with an 11 kilo um, luggage limit and she only tolerates four grams of protein a day so um, that was an example of somebody who's um, she said well, I've got an idea and a plan, but can I just check? Can you think of anything that will help this come off properly? Um, so taking all your prescribable food for a month, including protein substitute, when you can only eat four grams of natural protein, does mean you're likely to go over 11 kilos on the plane journey. But she wanted to do the field trip. And did she achieve it with your support? Absolutely. And to be honest, I didn't say anything that she hadn't already thought of. Or I might have one small thing, but she absolutely brilliantly did do her trick. And she reported back in our magazine as well. Amazing. And I'm sure that's the case for a lot of complex conditions and disorders where the patients really become the experts in their own conditions. Um now, I'm interested in whether you work with a team of allied healthcare professionals in your role as dietitian advisor at NSPKU. Are there any other clinicians that you tend to frequently interact with? Yes. So, um, I mean, as I said, the NSPKU does rely heavily on um, goodwill and volunteer um, efforts. Um, so the NSPKU has a medical advisory panel and in particular, I want to give a shout out to um, Barbara Cochran, 
metabolic dietitian in Glasgow, Melanie Hill, metabolic dietitian in Sheffield, and also um, Professor Anita consultant metabolic dietitian in Birmingham. And they have really helped me with regular meetings, encouragement, uh, second set of eyes on my <laughs> proofreading um, resources, and uh, just generally being a support um, and a constant presence, really. So that, yeah, you're right. I can't do this role by myself. Yes, I'm sure that rings true for a lot of dietitians listening to the podcast, the importance of multidisciplinary working, um, especially in a patient organisation like P uh, NSPKU. Now, taking you back, Suzanne, to your day-to-day -day role at the organisation, I appreciate that's probably not a typical day, but can you give us an idea of um, what a day in the life of Suzanne might look like when you're working for the NSPKU? Um, well... Sometimes I'm wrestling with the website or trying to design social media stuff. Sometimes I'm writing um, letters, like I mentioned, slightly, perhaps slightly shouty letters, but um, trying to advocate for this um, patient group that people don't recognise um, widely. Um, it might be addressing um, prescription issues. So many of the patients rely very heavily on um, prescribable food, low protein food, and also um, protein substitutes. And they are um, accessed through prescriptions that the GP will make, but of course the GP isn't a specialist. So my day-to-day work does quite often involve um, trying somehow to smooth out the prescribing issues that patients have. And we have surveyed um, patients on this and about half of the respondents actually was, yes, had prescription delays or obstructions. So it's trying to think of overarching strategies that might combat this or just doing day-to-day help for somebody who rings in saying, oh, my GP doesn't want to prescribe me low protein chocolate because I think he thinks that's a luxury. Um, so for a growing child, that might be a difficult thing. Um, so I might be working on that or I could be trying to explain how to make lo a low protein banquet for 80 people um, for an event in, say, Belfast or Cardiff or somewhere like that. Or it could be um, planning some YouTube content or um, I was involved in um, visiting Parliament uh, a little bit as well just before the pandemic in a campaign for some non-dietary treatment. And that was quite interesting. So the role is quite varied. I could be here on my own all day working away on the computer Um taking phone calls, or I could be traveling somewhere in the UK to meet others or do some teaching. Gosh, it, it does indeed sound very varied and also very busy. I'm not quite sure how you pack it all in around your clinical work as well. So um, Suzanne, has your role changed at all since you started working as a dietitian advisor at the charity back in 2017? And, and if so, what has that change looked like for you? Well, in 2017, um, 
as I've said, actually, the European guidelines came out and it did become apparent that um, the UK PKU population wanted to access this non-dietary treatment, which at the time was uh, a branded product called Cuban and um, a, a generic product called Saproptrin is now available. And it's it's basically an enzyme chaperone that um, helps the, the faulty or defective um, enzyme work in PKU. Um, and so this um, treatment helps people eat more protein potentially, or it helps them have lower, more stable phenylalanine levels, which then helps them have fewer complications of PKU. So generally that's very desirable. And in my first few years, um, first three years in the organization, we were campaigning heavily for access to this treatment, which mean, meant being um, very well versed in all the literature around um, patient outcomes. And it meant explaining them to politicians um, who are very busy people and not usually scientists. So that was quite interesting. Um, and there were some shenanigans actually when I took um, a display of food into um, Parliament. We wanted to demonstrate what a general family P uh, Christmas would be like and a PKU Christmas um, meal would be like in contrast. And I took um, I took a small butter knife actually um, as part of my um, cheeses display. Uh, and that got impounded and put behind bulletproof glass and was guarded by men bristling with machine guns. Um, so that was an interesting moment. But the um, parliamentary campaign has um, reduced somewhat because very um, helpfully NHS England and the other um, countries of the UK have commissioned Saproptrin now. Um, so the political work has become less intense but there's a lot still that the nspku wants to achieve uh for its patients so we have to keep going with um making the decision makers if you like in the nhs uh aware of the battles that people with pku have and um, one example is it's not a decision maker in the NHS, actually, but decision makers in the Department of Work and Pensions um, do uh, do often grant uh, DLA or disability living allowance to younger people with PKU or the families of people with PKU. But when the patients um go into adulthood, the um, benefit is called PIP or personal independence payments. So the Department of Work and Pensions don't really recognise the burden of treatment, the dietary treatment on adults with PKU. And that is a key part of our activity that we need to, or my activity that I need to be engaged in, because it's explaining that the diet we NHS has accepted this. Um, the diet takes 19 hours a week to deliver because you're, you're checking every single label of every single 
food item that you're going to be eating uh, when you go shopping and you're making a lot of food from scratch, including your bread, for instance, every day from scratch. You're negotiating with your um, prescribing um, GP or your dispensing chemist on a regular basis to get your prescriptions made up and sent to you in the right way at the right time, in the right amount. And there's an awful lot to do. Blood spot tests, um, checking in with your dietitians. So there's a lot of awareness and understanding still to be um, to be had by um, the authorities in the Department of Work and Pensions, as well as the NHS. That's really interesting insight and something that I expect if you don't work with patients with PKU, you probably um, not have even considered. Um, and also 19 hours a week to prepare the diet. Gosh, I mean, that really reiterates just how complex these conditions can be. Um, just before I go into my next question, I'm, I'm curious to hear um, approximately how many people in the UK have PKU. I have put you on the spot here, um, but I'm just wanting to know, you know, what sort of scale does your patient organisation have to support within the UK? That's fine. I should know the answer to this, shouldn't I? And I do in a way. Um, so... We think probably around 6,000 people in the UK have PKU, but not all of them are diagnosed. So um, we know, for instance, from a piece of work done in the middle of of 2021, that there are about 1,500 adults uh, with PKU in England. And I can't remember the number of children, but probably another 800 on top of that in England. And so across the UK, there's maybe three and a half thousand in clinics. Um, But unfortunately, there's a few um, issues with diagnosis um, in the history of PKU. So um, accurate diagnosis and systematic screening didn't take place till 1969. Um, And anybody born before then who has PKU may well be late treated because they uh, their PKU wasn't caught in time. There was not a systematic screening of um, newborn babies, and the test that was done was um, and called the nappy test a little bit unreliable. So we've got um, patients who may or may not have been kept under systematic follow-up because they might be, for instance, in um, nursing or care homes. Um, there was also a belief uh, back in the, well, 60s, 70s, 80s, that um, the PKU treatment was only needed on a temporary basis in childhood. And after that, the brain was all sealed up um, and high phenylalanine levels couldn't hurt it. And so people were discharged from clinics. So we've got quite a lot of uh, loss to follow up um, patients. So um, this is a shout out to any learning difficulties dietitians out there. If you've got PKU patients on your books and they're not under specialist follow up, um, the European guidelines suggest that they should be. Even if you think that pro- um, a low protein diet wouldn't be possible um, for the patients or it's been tried before, et cetera, et cetera, please do still um, 
contact the NSPKU to find out about a specialist clinic because um, there are, I've mentioned this treatment saproptrin available, but there's also guidelines to suggest that everybody with PKU should be under specialist follow-up. So, um, yeah, it's a complex picture, basically. Very interesting. And we will link to the NSPKU website and contact details in the show notes. So if there are any dietitians listening who would like to get in touch, then you can do so. So of the 6,000 or so patients uh, or people in the UK living with PKU, Suzanne, what are the most common queries that you get when you're manning the telephone line at the organisation? Gosh, well, all sorts. I do get um, people saying, have I got PKU because I was born before 1969 and I've got migraines or I've got a sensitivity to aspartame or whatever. So I I do give guidance about um, going back to the GP um, to discuss that. Um, We get people who are lost to follow up wanting to reconnect with a clinic and that's really rewarding that they've sought us out and they want to have that follow up Uh, we get people slightly less rewarding who are just struggling with um, their GP struggling with prescription issues they can't easily overcome despite um their specialist dietitian trying to advocate for them and they need extra advocacy. Um, we get people who are struggling um, with at school or university or in their job. They just need a little bit of extra um, support letters. So somebody needs to have uh, break times where they're able to um, access their Uh, protein substitute medication and have time to make it and sometimes some employers are um, not always helpful and encouraging around that so I might write letters so the helpline could be all sorts Um, you know I want to take a sandwich here in Japan Um, could I get my products there Um, so students achieve achieving great things um, and um, but still needing a little bit of help to achieve those things. And since you've been supporting these patients living with PKU and since working with the organisation, how has your understanding of the condition changed over the last few years, do you think? Oh, yes, hugely. So just understanding how people travel, how they plan their holidays, how they plan their careers, how tiring it is to go about your daily life or special events in your life, always having to think of your dietary treatment, always having to explain, always having to self-advocate and actually how very wearing and tiring that constant um, explaining and championing your own needs can be because they have to do this in ordinary day-to-day life, but also within the healthcare Uh, setting as well so in primary care saying to um, GP receptionists or saying to um, pharmacy technicians in your high street pharmacy what your needs are that's quite tiring so I've got a much greater understanding of that and the very wearing nature of having a long-term condition and the isolating nature of having a rare disease as well. 
Yes, and I'm sure your um, patients and service users are, are, are very um, grateful for that support and understanding that you offer them. Now, you discussed earlier in the introduction about your clinical work. Um, I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why you think it's um, beneficial for someone in a role such as yours to keep up their clinical work alongside um, the patient, the dietetic advisor role that you play for the NSPKU. Yes, I think um, having that in-depth uh, contact with my own patients in the NHS is is quite helpful. So my I have a um, a caseload of patients of people that I know quite well. They might have known me since I've been doing the work um, in two thousand and nine, and they have hopefully a rapport and a trust in me, so that they can really give me an idea in-depth idea of the challenges that they face um and for instance um women who are contemplating pregnancy who have pku do face additional challenges because phenylalanine that's high in the blood um is toxic to the unborn child or the fetus so there's a really intensified uh level of management of um and diet for women with um, who are pregnant, uh, and and actually at the point of stopping contraception, so the preconception diet is an intense time, um, and having that really intimate relationship with with patients is quite important. It gives you um, insights, which helps the other my other role, my 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 NSPKU role. Yeah, I can imagine so, um, and of course. I imagine working alongside other dietitians in this area as well. You're all um, learning and supporting one another as well. Is, is it quite a small world in dietetics, PKU? It, it is. So, yes, metabolic dietitians probably number about 150, something like that, might be slightly less. And um, it's the most supportive community of dietitians that I've ever met. And um, as I said at the beginning, I've been around in dietetics for certainly more than 25 years um the the um things we are grappling with sometimes are quite new um new developments new treatments or disorders that have only been named or um systematically um tested for in the last few years so gen and i don't mean pku but um, generally speaking, metabolic dietetics is it's just so rewarding and, again, a field of inspiring people who who support each other in a not quite a non-judgmental way. So we have to, you know, be honest and say, oh, actually, I don't think I fully understand this or I don't think I've, I'm very experienced in this because I've only got two patients with it or something like that. But, yeah, that's my experience of of metabolic dietetics it's just rewarding and um very constructive mm. and is there a bda specialist group for metabolic dietitians well do you know what there isn't because we work um so closely allied to the consultants and scientists that we work with we are um part of something called the british inherited metabolic diseases group um but and there's a dietitian subgroup of that, but we have um, an affiliation with the British Dietetic Association. So we are regularly in contact with them, actually. 
Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you for um, sharing that insight, Suzanne. Now, I just want to um, discuss the evidence base behind PKU because I'm sure it's evolved substantially over the years. And I'm wondering, do the NSPKU take an active role in uh, in establishing this evidence base? And are there any particularly memorable projects that you've personally been involved with? We've um, funded or helped fund some PhD um, work in neuropsychology. So that's looking at um, whether people have reduced sustained attention or reduced working memory or should I say different to um, a non-PKU individual and there is some evidence around this Um, so contributing to neuropsychology PhD funding in the past and in the future so there's one currently being recruited to at the moment and then um, some treatment uh, proof of concept treatment so there's going to be um, a genetically engineered probiotic that can metabolize phenylalanine that's being tested um, in phase three trials I think in um, the states but we helped fund the proof of concept um, work uh, seven or eight years ago And then other work, we have done quite a lot of lived experience surveys and um, contributed to the um, publishing of that. So they're all on open access papers. So work around um, how difficult it is to do the diet, the challenges around reproduction for women, the challenges around prescriptions, These are all open access papers, um, which uh, represent surveyed responses. But there's also work on um, eating out in restaurants or supporting schools, accidental aspartame exposure. Um, And the NSPK also helped publish a care consensus document on dietary management uh, of adults um, with PKU, which is... Um, was published last year and we're just working on uh, something for maternal PKU as well. And if people listening are interested in finding out more about this research, is it available on the NSPKU website? It certainly is, yes. So we've got a tab called Research and there are at least three uh, links to three open access um, documents for, for our main surveys. Um, and the the um, research types are categorised. I think there's about eight topics, and under each topic, there's a series of papers and links. So Fantastic, yes. perfect. So, if you're interested, go and have a look at the website. So, moving on from the evidence base to something a little bit different. Um, perhaps many of our listeners are familiar with Cool the Midwife. It's definitely a firm favourite in my household. And I was really interested to hear, Suzanne, that you actually contributed to writing a script for an episode in series 10 of Cool the Midwife, which aired last year and it featured a young girl who was diagnosed with PKU. So, how did this exactly come about? Well, and this is an example of that anything can happen. <laughs> Any type of query can land in my inbox. And um, yes, yeah, so I can't remember when it was, November 2019 or 2020, um, an email from the scriptwriter um, saying, 
um, were interested in PKU and how it would be diagnosed in 1966 um, with thinking of writing something, would you be able to help? And absolutely, definitely, yes, yes, yes. I'm very excited. But I did have to sign a non-disclosure agreement, actually. So I had to contain my excitement. So Anita McDonald helped me um, because actually I'm not a paediatric dietitian. So this is going to be about a toddler. Um, and I did have to seek a bit of help from a medic. Uh, Dr. James Nurse helped me um, just describe how um, the doctor in call and midwife would be looking at the child and so on. So it was hugely exciting. Um, so exciting when the final episode aired. Sorry, not the final episode, but when the episode finally aired. And um, Paula Lane, um, who was known for um, a role in Coronation Street, was the mummy of the little girl and she was just absolutely brilliant at just portraying that trauma the confusion the horror of what do you mean i've never heard of this and what do you mean there's protein in all of these foods how on earth are we going to cope and she did a brilliant job and actually later that year it was probably about six weeks later on international pku day we asked paula lane if she would do us a favor dress in green, which is the NSPKU's colour, and records a little award ceremony for one of our competitions. And she did an absolutely brilliant job. So that was lovely. But there was a, yeah, there was a honeymoon period just after the episode aired when people who had PKU or mums and dads with children with PKU were sort of going around going, oh yes, and my and my child's got PKU. And, the, and people go, oh yes, I know, I know what that is. So, um, yeah, it was great. What an incredible opportunity. And I'm sure amazing to help with the awareness of the NSPKU and indeed the PKU community. So um, the series was set in 96, nine, yeah, 1966, I believe. And obviously now we're in 2023. So looking back over those years, Suzanne, how do you think the development of uh, the treatment and services available to PKU patients have evolved over those years? What's been one of the biggest changes, do you think? Um, well, diet for life. I, I should briefly just say that I'm pretty sure that the episode of Call the Midwife, which is uh, in season 10, um, I can't remember which episode, episode, maybe episode five or six, is still on iPlayer. So if you, if listeners want to see it, then they can. Um so since 1966, well, massive amounts happened. In 1969, the um, moon landing happened. But more importantly, um, Dr. Robert Guthrie rolled out uh, universal newborn screening. So he went on a round-the-world trip in a little camper van, um, making sure that cu countries who said they would did roll out newborn screening. So anyone who's had a baby will have had the heel of their child pricked by a midwife on around day, well, somewhere between day five and day 10 of life. And the reason and the first disorder being tested for was PKU. Now other metabolic disorders were as well now. Um, so 1969, that happened. 
And um, there was quite a lot of debate in the um, 70s and 80s and 90s about how long diet should happen for. Um, but it's been concluded that there's there's nothing to say it's safe to discontinue. So diet for life was uh, really significant. The um, companies who make the protein substitutes have um, worked on um, palatability and pa acceptability by patients. That's been huge, um, hugely supportive of the patient community staying on their diet. Um, and just um, provision of dietitians throughout the UK um, to help this patient group has been really important. Um, there are still some gaps, so there's still um, not universal commissioning for adult services across the UK. The Southwest region and Northern Ireland don't have commission services, so there's still some work to do. And that leads me on nicely to looking forward to the future. So we mentioned in the introduction that the NSPKU is celebrating their 50th birthday or anniversary this year. Um, what are you, what's your hope and vision for the next 50 years ahead of the NSPKU, Suzanne? Well, the next 50 years, on my wish list and the wish list of all our patients, I think, fully commissioned adult services is a number one. Number two uh, is probably home monitoring. So at the moment, if you've got PKU, you track your metabolic control by doing a um, a blood spot onto a bit of kind of blotting paper, as it were. And you do that at home and you put the, the paper in the guttery cards in the post. And then a few days later, you get a result. I mean, actually, the lab turnaround time is fantastic, but you're, you're having to use the postal service. Um, and um, then you have to link that result when you get it back to what you were eating at the time. And it's not what you call um, instantaneous, easy uh, to understand um, results reporting. So it doesn't really help people all the time. And in particular, pregnant women, um, because they're always trying to work back and they're testing, um, you know, two or three times a week. So home monitoring would be revolutionary um, for a patient to be able to do this blood test at home and then stick it in a little device and maybe it would electronically tell the dietitian what the result was at the same time as telling the patient so yeah fully commissioned services home monitoring devices um and then uh, potentially exemption from prescription charges for the adults in england um and campaigning for other modern treatments because there is a generic chaperone enzyme chaperone treatment available at the moment but not everyone responds to it so um we are really hoping for future uh, treatments that everybody can benefit from that's so important and i do also think a little bit more psychology um availability for this patient group because they have um a rare and isolating disorder with a, a great huge great treatment burden which really does isolate them more because food is an everyday, um, an everyday social occurrence. Um, and the psychologists also can be useful for helping um, people who are, are just show um, struggles with 
their thinking capacity because of the phenylalanine excess in the blood or that we think may have crossed the blood brain barrier. So those psychologists are quite important and dietitians do a brilliant job of supporting patients, but having that wraparound team is really um, makes difference to patients. So there's a, there's a lot that um, we want to campaign for in the future. A lot. Yes, there is indeed, but there's also a lot that you've achieved over the past 50 years. So I have no doubt that um, the NSPKU, I'm sure, will be successful in achieving those ambitions. Um, just as we come towards the end, how are the organisation planning to celebrate their 50th year? Have you got anything exciting in the pipeline? Well, we've got lots of things. I'm just about to launch a golden competition for um, everybody do bits of golden baking or golden storytelling or golden TikToking. We have um, some fundraising to 50 your way through the summer. So I'm hoping that all the incredibly athletic metabolic dietitians will be doing 50 lengths of the pool or 50 miles um, walking, running, cycling, and the patients and their and their families as well. Um, those are a couple of things. We might have some interesting events uh, lined up in our um, courtesy of our political uh, friends in um, Westminster. We we don't want them to forget us, so they are supporting us doing something in the future as well. And we are hosting the European Society of Phenol Ketonuria's conference too. Um, and we may be popping up doing some day events here and there. So we've got a lot planned. Yeah, lots to keep you on your toes, it sounds like. Fantastic. And my one of my final questions to you, Suzanne, is what do you find most rewarding about working in this area of uh, PKU and for the NSPKU, of course? Well, I think that it's the patients and their families that inspire me because there's a lot of adversity. Uh, some of it is that's the way the disorder and the treatment have been at the moment. Some of it is, unfortunately, to do with the way healthcare is set up. But the patients never fail to inspire me. And they are imaginative, generous, very compassionate and um, very interesting people always. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to end our episode on, Suzanne. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and inspiring us all about um, the opportunities available to dietitians working for patient organisations. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Harriet. And thank you very much to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more health professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening. Our next episode will be out soon.